Well, good morning. What a great video about the, to really to illustrate this morning what we're going to be talking about. It's uh, the Lord is God of the nations. Remember last week, we're in the middle of our Isaiah series, and last week, uh, Monty just spoke so beautifully about God's uh, grace and how the uh, remnant will be blessed and the joy of salvation and joy, joy, and uh, this week that all comes to a little bit of an end. <laughs> you know that sound effect where you hear screeching brakes or the needle of a record player going across the needle? That's us today. Um, you know, it, it's easy. I really love to uh, talk about the forbearance and wonderful mercies and all those things that are true about God, and it, it's scary to talk about another, what we consider to be another side of Him. But today is what we're going to talk about. We keep... Um, we keep bumping into this God in the scriptures, and we've believed for hundreds and thousands of years that this book is nothing less than the revelation of who God really is. And uh, included in this is uh, the fact that we have to kind of deal with uh, God as He is. And so we've been looking at so far in the book of Isaiah, uh, largely King Ahaz and his uh, temptations toward uh, using other nations for security and then after this, we're going to take a look for a long section about King Hezekiah and how he ruled Israel. And in between, we have 11 chapters that we're going to cover this morning, 11 chapters uh, that say this. I'm not, God says, I'm not only the king of Israel, not only the, the ruler and God of Israel, I am the God of the nations. And so he, he, um, we start these, uh, these thir 13 nations are going to have these things called oracles, uh, about them. And an oracle means heavy and it means message. So put them together, we have a heavy message, right? All of these nations are going to receive a really heavy message from God. Here's what the message is about. If you put the map up there for me, please. Um, notice here, right in the, right in the center is, is Jerusalem. You see Israel there. All these nations around them constitute temptations for Israel, temptations for them to move into people and things for them to depend on that are not God. And so God sets aside this time in the middle of the first third or so of this book for 11 chapters as we have uh, configured them to talk about uh, the temptations around his people, temptations to move to other things instead of trusting in him. And so we're going to uh, take a look at all of these nations around here. We're going to center on a couple of them more than the others. So we could either drill down to a whole lot of history, or we could go uh, take a jet tour across uh, all 11 of these chapters. So we're going to do jet tour today. So we're going to take a look at this. And here's the good thing about this. Everything we talk about, unfortunately, is going to be very intuitive. It's going to be very simple. It's a thing called the human condition. So all 11 of these chapters, all 13 of these nations have a whole lot to do with what we human beings get into when we're dealing with one thing, and that's a thing called pride. So the overarching principle today is you look from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 23, you see people getting into this human condition called pride. This was a, a hard prep for me looking at myself through 11 chapters and any of you with a psychology background in school or graduate school, you remember taking the course called Abnormal Psych? Okay, well, Abnormal Psych is that class where you study all of the different psychological conditions. So I would come home from class and go, honey, I think I'm borderline histrionic, major depressed, anxiety, probably a little schizophrenic. <laughs> Sheila would say, that, that's what you study today, right? Yes, I'm all of those. 
and, 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 and WebMD, right? Like I've got, you know, disease of the, of the palm of the hand or something. It's going to kill me tomorrow. I can, that's a little bit what these chapters are. We read these chapters and go, I got that, and I got that, and I got that. So it's really, I was telling the worship team this morning, this is really one big, long, so what uh, today. So let's jump on in. We're going to make a couple of runs through this, but let's take, take a look, first of all, at humanity's real problem, and it's called pride, prideful humanity. If you want one sentence to describe pride, it's this one, my life, my way. What it is, it's first of all, an attitude of independence from, from God. The great Puritan writer Thomas Watson said, pride runs in our blood Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. A condition of the heart where a person has supplanted the rule of God over his life with the rule of his own will. Those of you familiar with 12-step recovery know this as self-will run riot. I'm going to call my own shots, my life, my way. So Let's jump on in. <clears throat> Buckle your seatbelts. Going to jump in and run through a couple of different times these 11 chapters in the book of Isaiah. The first oracle is given to a nation called Babylon. Now, let me tell you before we say this about Babylon, at this point in time in history, Babylon is nowhere on the map as a world power. They're still over 150 years away from rising to power, but they're put at the front of the line in these oracles. You're going to see them in chapter 13 and again in chapter 21. Here's the thing about them. Let me read you something about them. This is in the book of Habakkuk. Now, some of you brave souls can go over there if you want. It's located right next to Nahum, if that helps you any. The uh, book of Habakkuk describes these people. Now, I put the word arrogance on the outline as one of the first um, kind of results of a thing called pride. Listen to how Habakkuk describes these people called the Babylonians. They're called the Chaldeans. They're from the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Here's how he describes them. Chapter 1 of the book of Habakkuk describes them this way. For behold, God speaking, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Listen to this. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their justice and their dignity is found in themselves, not God, in themselves. Further on, verse 10, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and they take it. No fortress stands against them. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, listen to this, whose own might is their God, their pride. Nation of Babylon, the city of Babylon, their, their, um, their might is their God. And so even though they're not on the world stage yet, here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm giving you a preview of coming attractions, Israel, that they're coming. And this arrogant nation, we're going to see more about them as we come, come back through here. Uh, this arrogant nation is a picture of all that is prideful. Look at chapter 13, just one quick verse. We'll be back here in just a moment too. But look what they say, what it says about them. <clears throat> Uh, the last part of verse 11 in chapter 13. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The word pomp there means uh, ostentatious boastfulness. That's what it means in vanity. Verse 19, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans. So let me tell you one other thing about Babylon. One other reason it's at the head of these oracles there's a place in Scripture for Babylon to describe something even more than just a nation in what is now modern-day Iraq. It's shown as a picture 
of all that is evil, the evil system of the world. Flip over to chapter 14. See if something sounds familiar to you. Look at verse 12. This is describing the ostentatious boastfulness and pride of these people. Verse 12, chapter 14. Get used to turning, by the way. We do a lot of turning today. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, listen to the pronouns here. I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Satan, right? Lucifer, often attributed to him. And so Isaiah is making something very clear. We're not just talking about a city or a kingdom or a people group. We're talking about the very embodiment of evil. Keep that in mind as we go across. We'll be, be back here. So this people whose pride is in their own power, their own glory, their own splendor, and their own arrogance heads the list uh, of, uh, in chapter 13 and 14, along with Assyria, head the list of, uh, of God says, one of the first spinoffs of this thing called pride is arrogance. Your dignity coming from your own power, your own ostentatious vanity. Chapters 15 and 16 highlight a country called Moab. Moab is east of Judah. It's all, along with the Ammonites. They are the outgrowth of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so uh, you may remember this Old Testament person named Ruth. Ruth is from Moab. She's a Moabite. Verses 1 through 4, we see what's going on with them. They have been destroyed. They've been devastated, probably by the Assyrians. It's hard to know who, by whom, but they are in great wailing and great mourning. If you look at chapter 16, they ask for help, and they ask for help from Judah. It says, send, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Salem, by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeting birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. And God tells Judah, listen, take them in, grant them justice, take care of them, shelter them. And amazingly, look at, look at um, verse 5, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteous. God is saying to Moab, you come on in. He's saying to his people, Judah, let them come in. Take care of them. Look what they do in their religious refusal. What, what, what they do. Verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In this idle boasting is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kirharaseth. Amazingly, they were offered help and they said no. They refused. Here's what they said no about. They said, no, we have our own way of doing things. We have our own religious culture and that's what we're going to do. Flip over, well, in my Bible, you flip over. Look at verse 11. Excuse me, verse 12. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not fail. Moab said, hey, no thanks. Well, I have my own religion. I have my own way of doing things. So I think I'll just stick with that. So they refused. And Moab is not good. When they go to their high place, when he goes to his sanctuary, they're saying, I'm going to do my life my way. I'm going to have my God my way. And God says so sadly, uh, listen, wrong temple, wrong God. And how often does that apply to me in my religiosity, in my churchianity, in the rituals that I observe in my own pride? How often have I refused 
God's hand coming out to me in mercy to say, you know, I appreciate it, but I think I've done a pretty good job so far. I think I'll stick stick with it. That's what Moab said. No, no, we're in trouble. We're going to stick with exactly what we do and exactly how we do it, religiosity and refusal. Chapter 17. Chapter 17 is about the the nation of Syria, the city of Damascus in particular. But if you take a look, uh, verses 1 through 3, it's talking about Syria. All of a sudden, look at verse 4. In that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low. He switches to speak about Israel. And the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, as when one gleans the ears of grain, a valley of refrain, gleanings will be left in it, etc. All of a sudden, it switches over just three verses about Damascus, and the rest of this is about his people. So why in the world would Isaiah hide the nation of Israel under Syria? And the answer is much like it is for us. Um, They're not immune from the demands and the pressures and the stresses of living in a very unsafe world. And here's what they're doing. They're they're working real hard to get under the wing of a more powerful nation. That's the thing we call compromise. They're saying, where can we find our safety? And they don't look to God, but they look at the powers outside of them uh, in order to, to be able to, to fit in enough to be safe. And isn't that a myth of our culture that says, if I just work hard enough to fit in with the world around me, then maybe I can say, maybe that will be my answer. If I can just accommodate enough, if I can lose my distinctiveness as a believer, if I can just stay safe, get under the wing of someone more powerful, I'll be okay. Look what that causes. Look what happened. Verse 10, chapter 17. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. I can spend so much time looking at the greater culture around me that I will get into this place of forgetfulness of my rock and my refuge. And in my pride, I will compromise with the world, compromise with the the things around me to say, as long as I'm safe in this temporal world, I'll be okay. And what that says is I really have no need of God himself. And so Damascus and Israel are these pictures of folding into a culture rather than being salt and light in a culture. It's called compromise. In chapter 18, an oracle oracle concerning Cush. This is um, near Ethiopia. It's really more, scholars say, around about the Nubian people. It's talking about this land. And look at verse 3. The word Cush also means ends of the earth. And look at verse 3. All you inhabitants of the world. God's calling all the inhabitants of the world. You who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear. H-E-A-R, hear. This nation, this is a, a demonstration of a thing called demand, talking about God in his seeming absence. Look at verse 4. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling, like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. Here's what's happening. God is not being active in order to be seen like the people can see him. And God is saying to them, listen, just because I'm not acting in a way that you can see or not acting in a way that's up to your demands does not mean I'm not present. God says, I am always present. And the indication, your implication here is that people were going on doing their thing because God was not performing well enough for them to notice what he was doing. And if any of these hit me between the eyes more than the other, it was this one. 
I am world famous in my pride of demand to say, God, you're apparently not doing enough about this, and you're certainly not doing it my way, so you must not be here at all. Here I am again, all by myself. I'm very famous for that, and God is saying to these people, to the ends of the earth, not just to the Cushites, he's saying to the ends of the earth, I will quietly look for my dwelling like clear heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest implication, if I want to. If that's how I want to manifest myself in this situation, and I so often, it's a smaller section we have, but I so often live in such a way, if God's not doing my thing my way, I just decide he's not even really there, so I'll take it into my own hands. Very strong sense of pride just in, in my own life. Moving on to chapters 19 and 20, it covers Egypt and Ethiopia. In the first part, the first 10 verses of chapter 19, God's talking about what's going to happen to this nation of Egypt in their pride. I want to draw your attention to verse 11 in particular. This is one that's very near and uh, dear to my heart and what I do every day. Verse 11, the princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? When, where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion. They will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. This is a picture of humanistic counsel. I'm going to tread lightly here. But here's the problem. These princes of Zoan, they're from, a, they're from a, um, an area uh, called Tanis, which is in the north of Egypt. And it was in a trade route. Any Semite person, anyone coming from the uh, territory of Israel would necessarily, in order to get to the Nile Valley, would necessarily have to come through this territory. So the people that lived up there, these counselors that lived up there, these princes of Zoan were the sophisticates of the society. They knew what was going on, and they dispensed counsel. And God says, the problem is your counsel is all about living in denial. Your, your counsel is all about how great you are because you're Egyptian. Your counsel is all about you're so wonderful on your inside, you just keep right on doing what you're doing and the way you're doing it. And uh, if you're receiving counsel like that, please tread lightly. Uh, I don't say that with, uh, with, um, to be cavalier whatsoever, but there is a big push in the world today, in the field that I work in, that if you can somehow get all your human potential gathered up, you'll be just fine. That you're really, really good, and if you just imagine it, you can do it, and those kinds of things. And there might be a core of that that's true. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made us, and we do have amazing giftedness that he's given us, no question about it. But these princes of Zoan were saying humanist philosophy. They were saying, no, no, you're great. Just find more and more and more of your inner greatness. And don't dare think about living in submission or crying out to, to God. So these, these counselors of Zoan were counseling survival through human power. One writer put it this way. They gave feral counsel that never grew to a real animal. Feral meaning wild. They gave the counsel like a feral dog. Just, just grab scraps and, get, and just get all you can get and survive this thing. Don't ever cry out to God. So humanistic counsel, dangerous. These sophisticated men loving the sound of their own voices. Verse 20 is a, a, a little bit funny but also pitiful. Verse 20 is to Egypt and Cush as well. And God commands Isaiah to take off his clothing and to walk around. 
Now, it, the picture is more like that of a hospital gown. If you ever worn a hospital gown, <clears throat> pretty stylish, all right? Look what it does. Uh, verse 4, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, both young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Now, I don't know anybody that has ever strutted around with a hospital gown on, right? Not sophisticated dress, but it's a picture that God has given here saying, look, if you follow this humanistic counsel, if you live in such a way that you don't cry out to God <clears throat> for what you need out of your neediness, you're going to be like a guy walking around the hospital gown. You're going to be showing your backside. Right? It's like he's, he's doing this as a walking picture, having Isaiah. These prophets had a tough job. <laughs> Walk around with that thing showing all everywhere for, for a long time just to show a picture of this is what happens when you follow the humanistic counsel of your own personal empowerment in need of, not in need of God at all. You show yourself, you show your backside. So a very graphic picture that, uh, that uh, Isaiah is asked to show for the people. Chapter 21. <clears throat> Chapter 21 is the second division of these oracles. And you notice who heads the list again? Babylon. Babylon is at the head of the list again, both as this city, but in this case in chapter 21, it's completely impossible to date. <clears throat> so you read about chapter 21, almost everyone to be trusted in the theological world will say this is an absolute blatant picture of what my, word Monty taught us last week of eschatology, of what happens at the end. So look, look what happens um, if you just turn your attention to verse 9 of chapter 21. We'll be back to this one as well. <clears throat> and behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. It's a picture of idolatry. God is saying this, listen, none of this is going to last in its present condition. Isaiah is saying to the people across the centuries, like 20, 20 plus and counting, across the centuries, all these things that we would see as idols, power, stature, um, position, all those things, God is shouting through chapter 21 of Isaiah, none of this is going to last. It's going to fall. As a picture of Babylon itself falling, the great, this great city, this great system, uh, this, every bit of it, this is going to fall. Verse 10, O oh, my threshed and winnowed one whom I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. So God is saying in chapter, Isaiah is saying in chapter 21, this present world, all of the power, all of the system, all the politics, all this everything that seems so powerful right now, it's all going away. Fallen, fallen are you mighty Babylon. Chapter 22. No, an oracle, a heavy word concerning Jerusalem. In the first part of Jerusalem, it appears, again, it's hard to date, that this is based on 2 Kings 19, where God supernaturally killed 185,000 Assyrian troops without the nation of Israel having to raise a finger. God did it all on his own and, and confused them and had them actually kill each other. You can find it in 2 Kings 19. And they were celebrating that, and what they were not seeing was the imminent coming of the Babylonians. And God is saying, what are you doing? Look at verse 1. What do you mean you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? You're slain or not slain with a sword or dead in battle. God's saying, you didn't do any of that. I did that. I did, I did that. What, what are you doing um, throwing parties like this and not giving praise and gratitude to the God who, who saved you. So he presents this oracle. 
Look at verse 8. He has taken away the covering of Judah. This is a picture of when the Babylonians do come hundreds of years, a couple, uh, 150 years later. Judah's going to be uncovered. Babylon, under the command of Nebuchadnezzar, is going to come in and is going to take them into what we now call the Babylonian exile. Uh, Isaiah's looking ahead and he's saying in verse 8, he's taken away the covering of Judah. Judah is exposed. And now look at what Judah does in their self-reliance. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Now, that's all really, really smart. Like, that's what you would need to do in order to prepare for warfare like that. And Isaiah says, when your, when your covering was taken away, you did a really smart thing. You did tactical wisdom. Next sentence. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. When the heat was on, you relied on yourself. You relied on your own thinking. You relied on, again, 12-step recovery people call that our best thinking. We relied on your best thinkings. This self-reliance that they got into comes from presumption. And look at how presumption continues. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. In other words, God says the appropriate response is grief. To throw yourself on the ground in grief and sadness and to cry out to me for your deliverance. And behold... You didn't do it. Joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What did the people do and what do I so often do? Here's what the people did. In their self-reliance, in their presumption, when God spoke to them and said, you've been exposed, in their self-reliance, they went to this thing called amusement or distraction. They began to seek stimulation instead of life, crying out to God. They sought uh, intensity rather than intimacy. Those are two things that are switched very often in our world. I'm mistaken stimulation for real life, and I'm mistaken intensity for intimacy. God's saying, you're looking for intimacy, and you went to intensity. Eat, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so the people moved from a reliance on him that they could have had into this thing of more amusement, more distraction, more entertainment, more stimulation, more, more, more things to get away from neediness. And in my pride, I'm very guilty of that. Moving away from my neediness and into more, more entertainment or amusement, more distraction, more social media, more devices, more whatever I can do to get away from my own pain. And we come to the end of the oracles in chapter 23, an oracle against Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was, uh, was known as a, a seafaring nation. They were coastal people. They were sailors. One writer says this, they are preeminent seafarers, and they are fabulously wealthy. So Babylon's greatness kind of lay in her glory, her pomp, her splendor, her power. Tyre didn't have any of that, but she had wealth, and she had maritime contracts. A very wealthy people. They made money, money, money on the shipping of, of cargo. So if you'll notice, can you put the map back up here real briefly? If you'll notice... To the far east is Babylon, look to the west of Jerusalem is Tyre. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to give you bookends. I started with Babylon, which way this, um, I can't tell which way, well, my, sorry, Babylon over here, 
And Tyre over here, it's almost like he's saying, from as far east as you know to as far west as you know, this is what the world sees as important. This is what the world sees if we live in pride that we can have instead of God. And God said, I've told you all the way across, from Babylon all the way over, this is how these things end up. Any competition that I have that mankind will go to in her pride is going to be wiped away. So in that way, these cosmic bookends, um, book, bookmark tire, we're going to be back. Um, so that was our first run. So that's what the oracles say. Now let's take a look briefly at what God says about it, the sovereign judge. Here's what's kind of amazing. Through all of these oracles, bam, 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 13 of them in a row, here's what never happens. Isaiah never attempts to, revolve, uh, to uh, resolve or explain away what we would call a paradox. Isaiah does not make excuses for God. Isaiah does not take up this place to have to be God's image consultant or PR rep. Isaiah simply says it like it is. This is what God has said. This is what God does, and it's right and just and true. Mark Galley says this, God's anger and wrath can be understood as the response of the God who passionately loves and will do anything, <clears throat> including shake up his beloved if he thinks it will help them pay attention to the things that need attention. So God says, I love you, I care. It's a first point under sovereign judge. I care with this furious anger because I care that people are trapped in pride and presumption and arrogance and self-exaltation and self-reliance and glory, their own best thinking and forgetfulness. I care about that. I'm angry. So if we humans have this feeling in us called angry to let us know that we care, how much more, how much more righteous is God in his anger? So he cares about this. We're going to run through, look at several verses. So Get ready. Look at back at chapter 13, verse 4. The end of verse 4, chapter 13. We're going to run through these about what, how God feels about this kind of pride. Verse 4. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. When we read these, these a while ago, verses 6 through 9. Wail, wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold. He is not happy. Right? Looking at all the pride of these things. Look at verse uh, chapter 19. Um, excuse me, 14, apologize. Verse 14, sorry, go back, go back, hurry, go back. Verse chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. Remember all the I wills attributed to Lucifer, the king of Babylon, all the I wills. Here's what God says, I will rise up against them. Verse 23, I will make it a possession of the hedgehog. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. So we have all these different places where God continues to continue with chapter 14 about God and talking about his sovereignty. Look at 24 through 27. Sovereign judge, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon the mountains trample him underfoot. Verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? 
Over to chapter 23 to end this section. Chapter 23, verses 8 and 9. Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honor to the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. In 11 and 12 to end, he has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will no more exalt, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. God's saying real clear all the way through this. I am the king of the nations. I am the judge of the nations. And I cannot stand next to mankind's pride of doing it on his own and be okay with it. So with a furious anger, God says, this is the way this is. I will not share my sovereignty with anyone or anything. I'm sovereign in all things. And then beautifully, uh, back over again, if you would, chapter 14 again. God's not flippant or reactive. Often when I'm in wrath, in my own pride, I become reactive or I can become flippant. Not God. Let's read a couple of different places here. Chapter 14, verse 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Relentless grace. Over to chapter 16 where we read about um, the Moabites. Listen to what God says here. 16 verse 11. Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab and my inmost self for Kir Hariseth. We won't turn there. Jeremiah 48, 35 through 37 has the exact same words spoken to the exact same people. And this time it's blatant that it is God speaking. Isaiah speaking here the words of God. God says, oh no, my inner parts moan about this. My inmost self moans about this. I have great pain, God says, in, in doing this. Yet in his, in his uh, truthfulness, his righteousness, he, he must do this. And then lastly, chapter 19. <clears throat> it's a series of phrases. Monty mentioned last week a series of phrases in that day. Start at verse 19. Two of them already done. These are the last four. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt Listen to this, striking and healing, grace of God. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Who would imagine that? And Assyria will come into Egypt, Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That is amazing. It leads us into this last point about God's plan is going to prevail. It's marvelous words of God's grace and God saying, even though I am angry and righteous in my judgment, grace runs throughout. There is always a remnant. Uh, Monty mentioned it last week. Jeff mentioned the, the, the week before. 
So remember uh, Babylon in 13 and 14, this wider perspective and the entire in chapter 23 and looking very, very much alike. If you look back, not literally, but think back to, to Isaiah 14 about what's said about the king of Babylon looking so much like Lucifer himself. If you go over to, a, to a, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 28, starting in verse 11, you see words very much like these spoken to the king of Tyre. And so it's almost as if God is saying, now, now look, these cosmic bookends, they're pictures in a historical setting of a great cosmic battle in which I am God, judge of all, and I am righteous, and I am gracious, and I am merciful, and all of those things. <clears throat> and John, in the book of Revelation, all the way over to the very end of, of Scripture, Revelation 17 uses very, very similar wording. The words given to Tyre are spoken about Babylon and Tyre, Revelation 17. Let me read some of these, some of these to you, all the way over Revelation 17. The similar language. Listen to what it says. It's talking about Babylon. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and no mourning I shall ever see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death, mourning, and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For, the, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then on over, verse 15, the merchants of these wares, sounds like Tyre, who gain wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, there's Tyre again, Sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like this great city? In verse 21, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be no more. This world system is going away. It's all, it's going to be, it's going to go away. We'll be found no more. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And then watch the first two verses of the very next chapter. After this, after the fall of Babylon, after the end of all of mankind's pride, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude of heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are just and true. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. It's as if John took the scroll from Isaiah these uh, uh, 800 years later and said, I tell you what, I'll, I'll read the rest. I'll read the rest of this. And so he reads these words and uh, we see this, we've seen in these gospels that Jesus didn't come to bring divine judgment as Monty said last week, he came to bear the divine judgment for eternity. So he was judging our place. So in that day when he makes things right, God, John has uh, shined the light on Isaiah's shadows that we have the grace of God in Christ. And so in Genesis 12, where early on God talks about having a people he's calling to himself, we see it in full light here where the nations have come under judgment and God, his grace has made all things right. <clears throat> so it's kind of been one giant so what today, but uh, let's do this. We uh, take a few moments and choose your nation 
Choose which nation you need to talk to God about. Choose a kind of pride that maybe you're having um, in view of his mercies in Romans 12. Which one of these, of these oracles, which one of these uh, points of pride that are up on your outline do you need to uh, talk to him about? Just take a few minutes to have that conversation this morning.